0: farmer greg here and welcome to the 407th episode of the urban farm podcast where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's Seeds to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. Today on our podcast, we have someone who has become a steward of the soil. We're talking with Steve Sedera about building nutrient-rich soil. Steve is a third-generation farmer from western North Dakota with over 35 years of no-till farming experience building and maintaining soil health. After realizing that the standard farming practices done before he took over the land were the cause of the wind and water erosion, and that the soil was depleted of moisture and nutrients, he converted to no-till farming. He learned very quickly that just one simple practice of not disturbing the soil would allow it to rebuild and recover. He now teaches others how to rebuild and protect the natural commodity of their own soil so that they too can become stewards of their soil. Welcome to the show today, Steve. Are you ready to rock the dirt?
1: Absolutely.
0: Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to where you got today?
1: Sure. I have to go back probably, this is my 37th year of no-till farming. And if I go back to about 40 years before that, we had a place that was into contours it it surrounded two hills contour farming is little narrow strips that go around the hill Mm -hmm. for water erosion and we would get heavy rains and then we farmed that they were they were in narrow strips and one strip wound around the hill it was over a mile long but when we would get rainstorms heavy downpours then we'd have to go back and summer follow We would be farming with these two-wheel drive tractors, and you can imagine 12 inches of soil and then 12 inches being washed away, Mm. and it was continuously bouncing over those ruts. And, you know, when I was doing that as a a kid, I thought, there's got to be a better way to this. You'd look at all the soil, and it was washed down the hill and in piles. So then we went and, and actually talked to the extension service, put that into diagonals, And it was better, but then from there, in 1981, I made my first no-till pass. Our district had bought a drill, a no-till drill, and by district, I mean our extension service, our Uh our soil conservation district, and they bought a no-till drill that we could rent, and I I actually made my first no-till pass. 1981 was a very dry year. We were in a drought stage. 1982, I bought my first no-till drill. And basically, it it took off from there. Then in the 90s, we were were seeding with bigger drills. They were hoe drills. They were high disturbance. We kind of got ourselves into a monoculture situation with root disease and knew that we had to do something. So we started introducing field peas into the rotation to to break up the disease cycle, not knowing Mm -hmm. the nutrients and the soil health that we were going to build with the field peas. And so from there... I became uh, a student of Dr. Dwayne Beck out of Dakota Lakes Research. He said we have to complete the cycle, meaning that we have to use cool-season broadleafs, cool-season uh, grasses, warm-season broadleafs, and warm-season grasses. And we have to alternate that in a pattern. And so we started on that rotational path, and that took us to where we're at today. And, and today, it's, it's amazing what goes on out there.
0: Wow. So, a couple of things that I need to know about before we move forward. A no-till drill. What is that?
1: Well, that's a drill that doesn't disturb the soil. It's, today we have what we call, it's like a disc blade that goes in the ground, Mm -hmm. and it's at at an angle, and it just, it cuts through the residue, and it opens a slot, and in that Uh... slot the seed is placed mm-hmm. and then there's a firming wheel that comes along and firms that seed into the soil along with another wheel that comes and closes that slot. And it goes back to what Dr. Dwayne Beck has taught me. We call it Buffalo 1 and Buffalo 2 because that is what seeded the prairies. Buffalo 1 came along and pushed the grass seed into the smooth soil or into the into the moist soil. Right. And buff- buffalo two came along drug his hoof over it scattered a little crumbly soil over it and that's how the seed the prairies got seeded so we're mimicking that same system buffalo one and buffalo two
0: wow how cool is that so the other thing that you talked about were the field peas and i want you to kind of talk a little bit more about the difference that they made because they're nitrogen fixers
1: Well, they're not only nitrogen fixers, but they're a different classification of crop. We were in a cool season grass, which is primarily wheat, and we were doing wheat, 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 and we were getting socked by root diseases, Uh, common root rot, pythium, rhizoctonia, several root diseases. And even though we had moist conditions, had favorable conditions, doing everything we could think of doing right our yields had start going backwards so we had to break up that monoculture in that rotation and with that it's just a different plant type it it just utilizes the soil differently and it actually some of these crops like if you plant a brassica plant like which would be mustard or or something along that line Mm -hmm. um in the brassica family, it actually feeds off them root diseases. It it actually eats them as food and breaks up that cycle. So we got into the mustards and some of the brassica plants that way as well primarily being yellow mustard, which actually goes for hot dogs and and, must, and um, right. mustard on, on the table. So that was one of the rotations that we got into. And that's kind of in there with that cool season broadleaf as well. So uh, the one we struggle with is the warm season broadleaf. Today we use garbanzo beans. We have used some sunflowers. It's not our rotation of choice because uh, sunflowers are a real late crop and mm-hmm. And generally, it's a decision whether to eat turkey at Thanksgiving time or go combine sunflowers.
0: Oh, my gosh. Let's eat turkey. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you've mentioned multiple times this whole rotation. Can you say a little bit more about that and why it's important to the soil?
1: Well, it, it's just like if, if you're sitting down to dinner at night and your wife or your girlfriend or your significant other brings the same food out every time, Mm -hmm. say say it's some type of casserole and you have that for say two weeks in a row, what are you going to do? You're going to get to the point where you're going to start eating less of it and less of it and less of it. And you're going to look for something else. Mm -hmm. That's the same way that, that say if you plant wheat in year after year and we can do that because of a a no-till situation, where we're conserving moisture, we need to use that profile. But at the same time, that wheat is just going so deep in the soil, it the roots are not expanding. If we go to certain other plant types like warm season grasses, they build fungi called rhizoctonias that they build in the soil. Mm-hmm. And when it builds that mycorrhizae fungi in the soil, it's like root extenders in the soil so that the next crop that attaches to them it's like if you stick your arm out and you can't reach something Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you grab that tool that has fingers on the end of it oh yes that's exactly what endomycorrhizae does in the plant for the roots it it helps to bring more nutrients into the plant and quite frankly the plant becomes more robust and grows with more nutrient density and we have to have those those plant types in that rotation in order to establish that that cycle, that nutrient cycling process.
0: Yeah, well and it sounds to me like because I've heard of putting a cover crop in before that then gets tilled in. And that's not this. What you're doing is you're actually grouping different crops in a row that are feeding the soil.
1: Yes. There we have to remember that the best way to build soil health is with living roots. That's what builds soil health because everything that's in the soil, all the microorganisms in the soil feed off of living roots. They feed off the exudates that come out of the roots and everything. That, that's what builds soil health. So the longer we can keep living roots in the soil, the better we are. The disadvantage that we have in my farming area is we get extremely dry in July so that when we take our crop off, we come back in a lot of times with a cover crop behind that crop to keep the living roots going hmm. now to answer your question about cover crops that's a perfect scenario but the problem with cover crops is you don't till them right <laughs> don't, don't go don't go back in and till them up because you're you're breaking that i phrase it like this if we look look at the devastation from the last hurricane michael that just hit the panhandle or whatever it was Florida there Mm -hmm. you're doing the same thing with tillage to that world underneath you're destroying their home you're ripping ripping it up and so that's the way that I look at it is that it's it's like a tornado or like a hurricane that goes through there and just destroys that that's that's kind of some of the misconception uh cover crops are ideal they're they're the best that you can and, and it depends on the mixture I hear a lot of people that are planting just buckwheat they're planting maybe some type of rye or doing something like that or some type of warm season grass it has to be a diverse rotation our cover crops consist of probably about four or five different plant types that that we'll plant in the cover crop mix and that's so we get a diverse diverse rotation within that cycle as well going
0: mm-hmm So whenever I have a guest on my show talking about soil health, I always ask this question, and that is, what is your definition of healthy soil?
1: Healthy soil, and and I don't recommend pulling the roots out because you're disturbing soil, Mm -hmm. but even if you pull out, you can have this big old burly kosher weed out there. Sometimes you have to go out after rain, and I'll do this on occasion. I'll pull that weed out. And if you look at the roots, you're going to find little balls of soil that are attached to the roots. That's soil health. When you take that soil and you rub it between your thumb and your forefinger and it comes off real nice and, and crumbly and doesn't go smooth, that's healthy soil. When you start smelling it and it has that earthy smell
0: to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm
1: that's healthy soil if you smell soil and it has a little bit of a sour smell to it or something like that that's unhealthy soil yeah but if it smells nice and earthy and then the other thing you find in it if like in my farm fields if I move a little bit of residue out of the way and I see them tails go down in the ground where them earthworms are living that's a sign of healthy soil mm-hmm. that's a sign of friendly soil because they want to be in that they want to be in that zone.
0: Right. When, and this, this is actually confirmation for me on one thing that I do here at the Urban Farm. And that is that I, I, I take a knife or a, a vinyl cutter. It's a tool you can, it's about six inches long, you can get at the uh, hardware store. And I'll mm-hmm. grab that weed. And for us, it's mallows and lamb's quarters. I'll grab the weed and I just cut it off about a half inch below the ground. Perfect. The top is either goes into the compost pile or to the chicken, so it's a nutrient-dense treat for them. And then the roots, I've just killed the weed because I cut off the growing point of it, and the roots rot right in the ground. Absolutely. Yeah, so it sounds to me like I'm doing the right thing there.
1: Absolutely. The only other thing that I would do, depending on whether that plant has gone to seed, and, and you probably being of awareness or getting that before it goes to seed— the only other thing I would do is chop that weed up and leave it on the surface and try to. Uh-huh. We we always have the term nothing naked.
0: Oh yeah. By that
1: and and we call it armor on the surface of the soil. It it's been referred to in some of my training as the duff layer. We've changed because the term is becoming more well known in the no-till world as armor on top of the soil. And it has a variety of uses. The armor's like it protects, just like armor protects the, sol- the soldier in war. Mm-hmm. The, the armor protects against the heat. It conserves moisture. It protects that world underneath so it can survive. That's why we call it an armor layer. If you chop that weed up and put it on top of the soil surface, and you can do it a variety of ways. You can run a moor over it and grind it up or however. But if you start building that armor layer on top, pretty soon you'll get, so much activity underneath the soil, you won't be able to keep that soil covered because it'll be disappearing so quickly for you.
0: Yeah. I've seen that here, especially in the desert, it gets so hot and our soils just eat organic matter. Yep. So for our listeners, if they have a space that is what I call dirt. So for me, five components of healthy soil are dirt, airspace, water, organic matter and everything that's alive in the soil and we have less than one percent organic matter here in the deserts in our soil wow yeah so it it can be challenging until you get the organic matter added what is your solution
1: well it depends on what you want to do you know if, if you're trying to garden and if if you're trying to do market farm gardening then you're going to have more challenges because the first thing you need to do is find enough residue if and I recommend a no-till situation and I know that there's lots of market farms out there that are tilling right now Mm -hmm. but if you want to and I recommend the tillage the 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 no-till process for that but the first thing is is you know it it should actually start in the fall ahead of time Mm -hmm. not in the spring and 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 I think that's a misconception that everybody is thinking gardening they they go out to their garden centers and and right away they see everything going and they get they get all tied up in all the the buzz and everything that's going on in these garden centers of people hauling out soil amendments and stuff. But if you start in the fall and you start gathering the tree leaves and, and the grass and, and all that stuff as much. And I know a lot of people you're using straw that they can find. That's good. There's some, some things with it with weed seed that you have to contend with, but there's ways around that as well. But if, if you have to do a ground level situation, then try to find as much residue in the fall as you can and start covering that surface. If you're a small gardener and you want to raise herbs or something in your backyard and, and you absolutely, all you have is hard clay or, or like in Las Vegas, where surrounded by concrete and mm-hmm. sand. You may want to think about a raised bed system. My first attempt at a raised bed was in 2015, and and I did a commercial way of doing it. Then I did a no-till method. Th- the results were absolutely crazy, the difference in doing the no-till side, simply because I used the armor layer. I used a soaker system, like which I teach, like rainfall that happens in a natural environment. Mm-hmm. So you may have to use a raised bed, and then at some point in time— There's ways that we can teach to keep that armor layer and to feed earthworms underneath. And I know in Vegas, you can go to garden centers and you can buy earthworms, you can buy red wigglers, because I've been there. Start buying those worms and introducing them into that raised bed system, and you will start that cycle.
0: Yeah, so the worms are actually rebuilding, helping rebuild the soil for you.
1: The only thing you've got to remember is if you do that, you have to feed them. I have... Lots of people that come to me and say, I put worms in, and they left. I phrase it back to the dinner table with your wife. Uh-huh. You sit You sit down to eat. She puts plates out. She brings an empty kettle and puts it on the table. What are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to get up, go somewhere else. Yeah. The worm is no different. If you don't feed him, he's not going to stay there.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Well, and another, another really good thing to do that I've that I've found that works really well is buy some worm castings, buy fresh local worm castings. They have worm eggs in them and use that as a garden fertilizer.
1: Well, it's funny you should mention that because that's part of the process that we teach in your first no-till garden. We actually worm farm here. In my operation, we, we build a product called Super Soil, and we've done lots of testing with that. Anywhere from growing transplants to starting with a a completely worn out tilled system that has been nothing but a weed mess. And we have done our our fabric barrier, our armor layer, our soaker system. We We use that worm casting, that super soil mix in the rows the first year around so that we can get it started. But the interesting part of that whole process was about mid-season, we had worms that were coming and they were actually, our fabric was disappearing on. We couldn't keep residue on the top because the worm activity was so strong. So, yeah. you know, and it just depends on where you're at, Greg. Like if you're in the desert, that activity isn't going to happen as soon. But if anywhere that else where you have, where you can build topsoil, or you just ha- kind of have to look around at your environment. And, and I, t- I teach a lot of that as well, to, to recognize what's out there now. And then I teach areas where your locale's at, where uh-huh. you can go and look to see what's available to you. Wow.
0: Well, and one of the things that I will often do with someone, in fact, I'm doing a project tomorrow with a buddy of mine. We are simply going to add six inches of a nice compost and planting mix in an existing garden. And plant and people will often say to me well why don't you dig it up and I said well first of all it's hard on the back and secondly
1: why don't you let the roots do the work absolutely you're you're right on there and what'll happen even when you get natural rainfall with that compost you want to think of it this way that compost acts like a sponge it's not as good as the armor layer but what happens to a raindrop when it hits a hard surface? Imagine um, a raindrop hitting concrete. Uh-huh. And if you if you could take a picture of it, you'd get all them dots that splash. Yep. Well, if it's hitting hard soil, it has that same splash. Oh, yeah. And what it's doing, it's taking spores from that soil, and it's hitting the leaves. When it hits those leaves, it causes a fungus on that plant. So oh, right. when that plant is growing... In a soil, when that raindrop hits, and hard rains are different. I mean, you can get downpours that you get a spray across. But even so, when that raindrop hits that compost, when it hits that armor layer, it's like it hits a sponge and it deadens that raindrop. It slows it down slow so you don't have that splash effect.
0: Mm -hmm. So you've used several words that I want to clarify. Soil armor, duff, residue, basically this is all green organic matter that you've collected or even brown so like you've mentioned leaves basically you're just putting a nice layer of uncomposted organic matter on top and letting it do the work
1: absolutely and a a good rule of thumb is 60 percent green 40 percent brown Mm -hmm. and the thing you got to remember about tree leaves is they are full of trace minerals because trees roots go deeper every year oh yes and and when they go deeper in the profile, I mean, I was told once, if you see a 30 foot cottonwood tree, the, the roots are 30 foot deep. Now I've never dug one out, <laughs> yeah. of that, but I do know that the tree leaves, it, look at it this way. When you go fishing and you go looking for worms in most areas, where do you go? You always go close to a hedge or mm-hmm. something that has a leaf cover or that armor layer on top where the soil's most if you dig in that soil it's some of the richest brown you know sometimes it's black yeah because because the worms have broke that down so much so let's create that same environment in our garden
0: yeah so much of this no till stuff is really just watching nature and letting nature be is it not
1: absolutely just just bringing just letting mother nature come back and, and letting her do her work. And there are so many things that are available out there, like I said, mainly tree leaves, growing grass, green grass. Green grass is full of nitrogen. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the green leaves is full of nitrogen because a lot of people put starter fertilizer on their lawns to make it green. But then through the process of photothensis, that grass converts that into a nitrate that's actually more available to the plant. Plant roots don't want nitrogen. They want nitrates. Nitrogen burns the root. Nitrates are friendly to the root. That's why plants, when they get that natural nitrate that's naturally made, they will go into that zone, and the uptake is that much greater.
0: Wow. So let me just throw something out. You may not know anything about this, but I recently heard that after a thunderstorm and rain – that brings some nitrogen down, yes, and things will thrive better. Is that absolutely? Is that, yeah, okay. I didn't know that. And when some, just a friend of mine said that to me, and it's like, wow, you know, I never noticed that. How does that work? Do you know?
1: Well, it, it and I don't know the chemistry of it, but it's it's to do with the lightning in the air. Mm-hmm. It's the static electricity. But have you ever been in the spring of the year? when you've got buds on trees and it looks like they could pop anytime and you get and you might look for this this next spring and so you'll get a big thunderstorm that comes through and you go out after that thunderstorm not very long after that and the trees are all leaved out
0: mm, i have not seen that but i'll watch for it
1: yeah that's the nitrogen in the air yeah. that does that you can take i can take my wheat field and not being under stress or anything but you get and And the rain helps it because it gives it a drink, but if you get a lightning storm with it, and especially if it's between the the first leaf and the fifth leaf, mm-hmm. and you go out in that wheat field after a lightning storm, and it's almost like it grew a half inch.
0: <laughs> man, I love watching nature and mimic things yep. just follow that
1: yeah, cool. Yep.
0: so you've mentioned multiple times your teaching. Tell me about what you teach, how do people find it, what's that about?
1: Well, I'm at tabletopfarmer.com. We're in the process right now of building our first soils course. And then we'll be building a course for transplanting. And we're kind of following the season this winter. And then in January, we'll be launching a course called Your First No-Till Garden, which people can tune into and they can learn how to build their first no-till garden. So I want to build the soils course first and launch that. People in soil... In general, I I've been to a lot of farm trainings and stuff. I there was used to be a big no-till uh, organization here in Manitoba and North Dakota. And any time that professor would get up there and teach about soils, you'd look around and the room would be half asleep because soils is not a real sexy thing. I mean, you start teaching about the chemistry of it and what happens and the biological things, and and people kind of tune out. So I've worked to kind of make it exciting by examples of what happens when you have healthy soil, just the basics of how to recognize your soil, but what to do, you know, how to how to change this. And I've learned through four years, I started on this journey back four years ago this month where Tabletop Farmer was founded. And actually the first thing I did, Greg, is I went out and it was recommended to go out in my oldest no-till field, get a slab of that soil put it in a box and bring it indoors. We were, we actually ended up with a bobcat out there trying to get that soil out because every time I would lift it, it, it was so, it wasn't compact, if that uh-huh. makes any sense. It yeah. was just, it was granular and it wanted to come apart. Yeah. So we we actually had to build a box in and bring it indoors. When I brought it indoors, it failed miserably. I mean, that soil needed to be outdoors. Outside. So Yep. I, I knew I had a lot of work to do and we've actually been able to establish what we've done is we've taken our no-till system and established methods that we can do that in container gardening. We can do, and, and, and all it is, is just taking the, the basic principles of that and applying them to a container so that it'll thrive. We have potting soil. <laughs> I, I could get, I could go on and on here for hours, but we actually started a project. It's do-it-yourself. The, the ultimate DIY potting soil is what we call it. Uh-huh. And it's where we take old potting soil that's been thrown out of plants that discarded. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a picture of me diving in dumpsters, pulling these plants back out. We brought them into our shop. We revived that soil through the process of earthworms. And there's a whole process of why they love that soil. Yeah, And we, we did not add one single thing to it And we regrow plants in that soil. We grow them beside potting soil that you buy out of the store. And the difference between our soil and that natural soil and the soil you buy out of the store is absolutely amazing. I'm
0: sure. Well, you know, anytime you add worm castings and worms, you know, you're looking at a bonus there. Absolutely. Great. So that's tabletopfarmer.com. Check out the website. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: Well, out in the country, we've had numerous failures. I mean, it's been from trying different crops. You know, we we tried soybeans because we wanted to grow soybeans. That's that's before they had Roundup Ready soybeans and whatnot. That was a complete failure for us. I think that the biggest thing that we failed at was just simply – high disturbance when when we tried, when we were using hoe drills to seed with yeah. and trying to incorporate a little bit of tillage in with the process, that was some of our biggest failures. And since we've learned how to manage the residue in the field and create that duff layer on top, we've been able to heal them failures. And a lot of what happens is Mother Nature will heal almost any failure with rainwater It's pretty amazing. Um, Sometimes sometimes you have to wait a while for it to rain in this country. We're semi-arid here. But I think some of our biggest failures have been just from trying to change the system that was in front of us a little bit. We wanted to deviate a little bit from it. And the devil is always in the detail. Yeah,
0: I'm laughing over here because there is so much truth to that. I am a big proponent of just go back and watch how nature does things.
1: Yep. Because, exactly
0: as my uh, as my late friend Toby Hemingway always used to say, nature always bats last.
1: Yep, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's cool. So,
0: what do you consider your biggest success?
1: Well, the success is this last year in 2017, we went through a major drought that was compared to 1988. Actually, it was worse because we had less rainfall. Okay, if, if we back up to 1988, we had the worst drought that we'd ever had and bear in mind i was seven years into a no-till operation we were in a monoculture state but we never combined one acre in 1988 that means it never got harvested it never got harvested Nope, we never took took the the combine or what we call the harvester out of the quonset it stayed there Mm -hmm. there was there was just nothing to to harvest it was that dry that hot if we fast forward and it wasn't quite 30 years, it was 29 years to 2017, we had temperatures that started the end of May touching 100 degrees. We got into June, we were into the 100 and single digits 103, 104, 105. We had less moisture in 2017 than we did in 1988, but in 2017, we ran that harvester over. Every acre, we combine every acre. Some of it wasn't very good, Mm -hmm. but it had a crop on it. What we've learned through that process is that a plant's growth is dependent on about 49% water and 51% soil health. So we built that soil health within the system to where that plant was able to utilize everything that was available to it to push out everything that it had.
0: That's huge. What are the other farmers around you that are till gardening or till farming saying about this? Are they taking notice?
1: Well, this area has converted. You find very little tillage in this area anymore. Wow. It has, you know, it we had some pioneers to the south of me, not very far that that started no-tilling earlier than I did. And there was two guys and they actually were the pioneers that drove the no-till movement. And we watched that. They were instrumental in getting that no-till drill into that soil conservation district so that we could move forward. And if you get out of this area, um, we're in a little pocket here of, I don't know, probably 100,000 acres, maybe a little bit less than that that's tillable uh-huh. in what we call Golden Valley. And most of what's here is is no-till. I would say we're wow. probably about 95%. So that being said, there's still the rotational aspect and mm-hmm. not all those people are practicing those rotations and you can tell it in their crops. Yeah.
0: So what drives you?
1: When I walk out into the country and I walk across the field and it, the footprint always, what's beneath your feet is mm-hmm. what drives me. If you walk into one of my fields, I, I mean, it can, we can have a downpour of two inches. You can get out of the vehicle On the road, your feet feel full of mud. So I park next to the grass. I can walk across my field and never get my shoes muddy because I have that infiltration rate built where that water goes into the profile. It's not making the slurry mud on top of the soil. Mm -hmm. When I watch those plants spring up through that soil that I've, that I've planted and the robustness behind it, that's what drives me just being known that, that I'm, making a small change in this world, bringing it back to Mother Nature.
0: (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Thank you for that. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: Well, he actually has three books out, but probably one of the, the, the ones that I enjoy the most, it's by David R. Montgomery. It's Growing a Revolution, and it's, it's got a subtitle, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And he just talks a lot about the geology of soil and, and where it's gone over the years, and you know the first part of the book is kind of like doom and gloom because it's like oh my god you know we're we're just headed for disaster but the last part of the book he talks about what we can do to bring that soil back to life and it's there's an ending to this that if it's our choice to change this and we have all the tools we have more tools available to us now to change this whole thing with soil health than we had back when i started i mean it's oh, the yes. knowledge the knowledge is we had no knowledge When I started in 1981, there was nothing out there. The internet wasn't even hardly existent then. And all we had was a few books and we had to rely, I had to rely on these two people to the south of us. Then Dr. Beck came along and and taught us, you know, a lot. So David has done an amazing job at traveling. He he travels even overseas to see what's going on over there. And he brings that all to the forefront. So his book is, is what I would recommend.
0: Perfect. What was the name of it again?
1: It's called growing a revolution.
0: Perfect. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Don't till. You till you kill. Yeah. And by that I mean you kill in two ways. You know, people till to kill the weeds on top. That's their primary thing. They they till to amend the soil, think they're doing good, but they don't realize what they're killing in the process of doing that.
0: All the soil life. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Steve.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a privilege.
0: So, how can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: They can get a hold of me through by email at Steve S, that's S T E V E, and then S is in Sam at tabletopfarmer.com, or they can go to the website, tabletopfarmer.com, and they'll find my email address at the bottom. They can email me anytime. I, I monitor my emails on a daily basis. So, Perfect. if they have questions, I'll answer them.
0: All right, cool, cool. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash farmer. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then, let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your Urban Farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org.